A few years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many of the various Buddhist lineages. In one of the discussions, the question of what is Buddhism came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. He went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, nibbana, being complete purity of the heart, the mind, has been described as the heart and mind of an arahant, a completely liberated being. In hearing His Holiness the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. A year and a half ago, when I sat with Saida Upandita, and then just this past spring, when I practiced with Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers spoke in very similar ways about this same possibility over and over again. And of course, in the suttas, the Buddha speaks of uh, freedom this way many, many times also. As our own confidence grows, as it deepens, we too begin to know that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here we all are, making physical and mental efforts in the service of awakening in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in our lives outside of retreat, we come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease we begin to find that, at least to some degree, we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go, at least to some degree, of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, what's harmful to others. We find that the wholesome states of mind 
the wholesome states of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection, our feeling of confidence in these teachings and practices deepens. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now, and in relationship to our deepest goals. This is what grows. Our confidence takes a deeper root. And this is from the Buddha to his monks and nuns. Abandon what is unwholesome bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If, I were to, if it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings, brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary metta, compassion, and wisdom of the Buddha. The mind of a Buddha seeing only suffering and the end of suffering and encouraging, exhorting those heading towards suffering to take care, encouraging them to pay attention rather than judging them, rather than condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those who are heading towards the end of suffering and rejoicing for them. This approach to life, this way of life, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence within one, this feeling of, I can do it. It can be done. Over the years of my own practice, there have been a number of times when I've felt various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings, in relationship to practice. And when I've been able to be really honest about it with myself, I would see that most of the time It was because I was afraid that I wasn't capable, wasn't capable of really actualizing the teachings. And I also found that when I've been filled with confidence in myself, my love, my gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my practice, has deepened and grown. 
One of my Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says that we must always approach things with the attitude that you really can be successful, that this is what the Buddha taught. This past spring, at one interview, I went into him and I said, this is hard. And he looked at me with a very sweet smile on his face, and he said, no, it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. It got a lot easier after he said that. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha, are filled, really filled with this approach to practice. So this evening, we'll explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have some skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish, liberation from confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experiences of suffering. He wasn't looking for truth, the truth of awakening, from an idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgment, sadness, grief, Longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we may have seen and mindfully investigated. Some of them we've ignored or maybe hidden them away. In our practice, we open to whatever is, whatever is here, whatever is present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet, when they appear. Maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a true happiness, a true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but I never have. If there are people like that, that's fine for them, but it doesn't seem to be the way for most of us. Most of us really need to discover these so-called skeletons, 
in order to find a really true depth of happiness and ease in our life. Or we'll just continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never really, really, truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and maybe buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often quite unconsciously, unwittingly, for maybe a very long time. This is a piece called The Myth of Sisyphus by Stephen Mitchell that speaks about this in a particular way. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool, this tool of mindfulness, this tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence. To be able to see clearly, to be able to go home. Our Vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta and compassion, teach us, give us the tools to open to our experience from the heart of kindness and patience, from the heart of acceptance and compassion in relationship to ourself and to others. This is such an amazing process, this process of learning to open to our experience from the deepest center of our being, learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached, to see what is right here, right now, and begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We notice, we know how it is in this present moment the breath, the body, mental states, 
the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this present moment. With this tool of mindfulness, grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, strong desire, really have no more control over us. The reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of, trying to fix, or ignore, or delude ourselves with a seeming equanimity in relationship to difficult emotional states. You know that feeling of, oh, it really doesn't matter anyway. These reactive habit patterns, through our practice, begin to be met with the heart of kindness in order to be seen clearly, or we might say to be seen through. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of a connecting and a knowing, this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all the boxes opened, and the skeletons uncovered, so to say. We can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, without giving the past continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what's concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And of course, as you well know by now, it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen and deepen mindful awareness, concentration, investigation, metta, and continue cultivating this heart of compassion through metta, this heart of kindness. It's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the clearest depth of truth to be seen and to be known. 
as each of you are becoming more and more familiar with. We sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface and be clearly seen, investigated. And as we know, it takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere. And the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance based in fear. And this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and letting go of this process of relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned, habituated patterns of suffering, letting go of, relinquishing our addictions of mind, we could say. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj said, Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something probably many of you have heard many times and that you may very well hear again uh, during this retreat. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Of course, he wasn't going to teach us how to suffer or tell us a better way. We already know that. I'd like to take a bit of a further look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is very directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering which is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, 
comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. An infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, strong desires, attachment, sadness, etc. And yet we so often take the opposite of this truth to be the reality of things. Taking our experience, taking things to be as though quite solidly in place, permanent. Taking our experience and things to be separate, solid happenings, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past. We project into the possible future and solidify both in our mind. And yet, life just keeps flowing along. But there's good news. An amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As the Buddha very clearly tells us in his teachings about the second, the third, and the fourth noble truths, which will be spoken about in more depth as this retreat goes on. Where I live in Taos, New Mexico, During our rainy season, our monsoon season, in the very big open skies of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows, even double rainbows quite often. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. There's the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light, the sunlight, is just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so very quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, All of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with our more solidly appearing and sticky phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind. 
including emotional states of mind, which for many, many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things, experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Liberation isn't based in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. We have a saying in English, ignorance is bliss. In the brilliant clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is simply ignorance, and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. I'd like to spend a little bit of time now exploring a few of the hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear can often appear in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance. That experience of feeling like, I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling like, I can't be with this experience. I just can't. This old or maybe unfamiliar, seemingly new experience or strong emotional state or some old or seemingly new pain in the body. Or maybe we even feel this in relationship to pleasurable experiences. I can't be with this moment of life feeling frozen or caught, not able to take the next step, so to say. Fear from this perspective, if we take it up, if we buy it, can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations, to other people, as judgment, blaming, the critical mind. It's his fault. 
It's because she did this or they did that. This fear turned inwardly manifests as self-judgment, self-blaming, feelings maybe of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, or not being able to do it right. Or our practice, our life, our self, not being perfect. Whatever that might mean to each of us, something different, I'm sure, to each one of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. Some years ago, I came across a definition of perfection. Coming comes from Chang Tzu, the Chinese uh, Taoist uh, philosopher Chang Tzu, that I'd like to share with you. Maybe a different definition of perfection than you have. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. So perfection isn't about becoming something or someone from this definition. We may have a habit of getting caught in identifying with states of mind, of judgment, of blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that we're often afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and it's not been so easy. One of my teachers used to tell me when I'd come in and fearfully report the experience of fear, he'd say to me, fear is just fear. When he first told me this, I responded inwardly. I didn't say this to him. I thought, as I walked out of the room, well, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) Clearly a coloration of anger and uh, resistance in those thoughts. But actually, over time, I began to see that fear, fear is just fear. As we gently persevere in our practice of mindfulness, with a growing and strengthening open-heartedness based in the in kindness towards ourselves we begin to be able to meet to receive fear to come close to it to look it in the eye and not be so bound not be so imprisoned by it 
Not be shut off to the unknown. Not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. As we get strong, stronger, as our mindfulness muscle gets more developed and our heart gets stronger, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on an infinite number of other conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know and will never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience, but it's clearly not me from this perspective. It's not that the energy of fear will never happen again. But we can learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, lose the fear of fear itself, and begin to see it clearly. See through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. The poet Wendell Berry speaks about this. He says, I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. And this is a piece from the Native American writer Scott Mamaday, M. Scott Mamaday. It's called The Fear of Botali. Botali rode amongst his enemies, once, twice, three and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards he said, certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear 
in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't work to repress or ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They simply reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states also doesn't work. It actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's not about blindly acting out afflictive emotions. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns, strengthening and reinforcing the habit of them. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught, when we're swept away in them. There can often be quite a lot of restlessness in the body and in the mind, making it very difficult or seemingly impossible to become focused, to become mindful in relationship to our experience of the present moment. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to experience. The intimacy of connection and mindfulness that's already been mentioned a number of times in this retreat, this intimacy in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away, without pulling away, without desiring our experience to be different. So it's very important to learn to work with these difficult, afflictive states of mind, states of body, when they're what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So taking a few moments to look at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, very powerful energy, and from that perspective can be quite seductive. I knew someone once whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached, very identified with her anger, and in fact spoke spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in this energy. But unfortunately, she was not a very happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would get close to her and feel the sharp burn, the needles, the sting of her anger, and they'd move away. Consequently, she was a very lonely person. And yet, 
so identified with herself as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, lose her energy, lose her power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. The first person who is hurt is always the angry person. I think what's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is tight. It's agitated, narrow, constricted. The quality of one's awareness changes. Clear seeing and any perspective just simply vanishes. One often feels restless, as I've mentioned, maybe driven. Nothing is satisfying. Sleep is often difficult. The body is quite tense. With anger, the sense of self is very large, and the sense of the other looms very large. I think that one of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though there's a line drawn that isn't to be passed. And each angry moment deepens the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that anger, rage, hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind. The point at which we become aware of anger depends upon the quality, the strength, the clarity, and the depth of our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other emotional state of mind, anger isn't solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood of the mind. An emotional tone of mind. And various changing bodily sensations. All of this coming and going, changing, arising, passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or sadness or disappointment or expectation, desire, attachment, it's very helpful to try to let them go, 
to just let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I sometimes say. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they also feed the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body, feeling the emotion directly, feeling it fully in itself. And this even includes pleasant states such as delight or happiness. Feeling these states of mind in themselves without the story. What are you feeling, for instance, with anger? Maybe heat, tightness, pressure, contraction. Where is it? How's it changing? Notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? more contraction. Give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Is there interest grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of mindful attention. If the emotion is too strong to sit with, do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do. Bring your attention directly into the body with the walking. You might open to the natural world, the natural world outside, the expanse of the fields, the trees in conjunction with the spaciousness of the sky. Notice the birds, the squirrels, rabbits, insects, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body. In those moments of a connected present moment mindfulness, afflictive emotions disappear. They aren't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. It's beyond compare, really, in a quietly wonderful way. And some words from... Nisargadatta Maharaj again. He taught in dialogue with his students usually. So a question from a student to Nisargadatta. What is the real cause of suffering? And it's Nisargadatta's response. 
self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. As Wendell Berry again so eloquently expresses with his poem called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I awake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the peace of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. The energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the understanding that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing, that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition. With a clear, non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, Therein lies the possibility of the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, clinging, sadness, etc. I'd like to spend just a few moments now looking at the wanting mind, the states of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment, Classically, uh, desire, clinging, attachment in the mind is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision's obscured. When our mind, our heart, is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of 
strong desire and attachment, we're blinded by desire. And I think there's some misunderstanding in interpreting the Buddha's teachings sometimes. The misunderstanding that desire, all desire, is a bad thing. Desire is a natural human experience. For instance, it's what got you here to the retreat. There are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. And there's the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to be contented, in order to really be at ease in our life. The thoughts that satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it won't, that in fact it can't. Some years ago, someone sent me um, what I was told was one of Mother Teresa's practices, prayers. And uh, I received it in the mail, and and a friend called soon after I received it, and I, I read it out loud over the telephone to my friend, and his response was, Oh, my God, have I got a lot to do. I'll read it to you, just as I got it. This is the practice of what many people, a, whom, a person who many people feel was a saint. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being reproved, from the desire of being popular from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. I don't think she left anything out. So you see why my friend said, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. I found it really quite inspiring, still do, quite inspiring. An honest saint. (laughs) I think we can become quite attached, dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire. Expending an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to this or that. Trying to get something back. Trying to keep something or someone from changing. Trying to recreate a changing object. A changing experience even here on retreat. Maybe the particular wonderful sitting you had the other day or on your last retreat. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment 
the self-centeredness, the identification around desire, that's the problem. I think we could pretty safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. I think a really good question to ask yourself now and then is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my desires? So, a simple and quite mundane personal example. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens I've ever seen. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to uh, where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go do something else. But I wanted to stay there and to continue experiencing that sweet smell. So with that moment of clinging and not being willing to let go, not being willing to go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. And I was feeling tightness in my body, irritation in my mind. I got up and walked away to do what needed to be done next. And there was still the feeling of grasping onto that sweet smell, even though it was completely gone from my field of experience at that point. I was already attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could go back again to the garden, imagining how nice it would be to later on when I could finally get back there. What just a moment ago was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so very quickly. As we begin to see attachment and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, a kind of stress, a burning, burning desire or burning fear. In the, in the case of fear. And I think, actually, that there's often confusion, a kind of delusion that this yearning, this state of desire, this attachment, feels good. And I think we even sometimes confuse it with love until we really begin to see it clearly. What is ease? What is happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire, 
a moment of release from the stress of attachment, a moment of liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning, the ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning. He went on through all the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. A while ago, I I found a recipe. And at risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this recipe with you. And this is the ingredients. It's actually, the the recipe is a recipe for unhappiness. (laughs) And the ingredients is one cup of what is one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter cup of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, (laughs) one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And here's what you do with the ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. (laughs) Stir in complaints and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends. But be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, Add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact <laughs> in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, Add what is an inability. Add to what is an inability to what is. Wait a minute. Excuse me. When mixture is pureed, add to what is an inability to what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection, and let stand until tears form. <laughs> Garnish with minced envy, and serve immediately. A familiar recipe, maybe. (laughs) And from a different uh, perspective, from uh, a Chinese teacher, Chinese sage, Nan Shin, kind of the same uh, teaching. This is what Nan Shin says. By not accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality.
The Buddha offers us another recipe, the recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindful attention and investigation that's grounded in kindness. A strong and clear mindful attention that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of the afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. With mindfulness and investigation and clear discernment, the contraction of identification, attachment to difficult emotional states begins to break up and the wholesome states of mind, of heart, begin to be more accessible and more often the experience of the moment. And we begin to touch the liberation of non-clinging. One way we might consider emotional states in relationship to our practice is that they are the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is a short piece from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, the white lotuses don't grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so, the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that in fact, as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so, not to pretend to ourself or to anyone else that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to the identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many, many people a potent aspect of this process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called the nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, cankers as the Buddha often called them, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states are digested into wisdom. So taking just a few moments to look at some of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, with no self-grasping. 
transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The mind, the heart, reflecting clearly. It's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, discriminating, mindful awareness. Sadness, without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into great compassion. And lastly, fear, without self, is digested into the great, strong heart of metta and compassion, bringing the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find that there is what sometimes is called the place of coolness, the place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and mind, the place of freedom from the burning, the end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or nothing needing to be added. Nothing taken away or nothing needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the talk with a poem. It's called Hokusai Says. Some of you may know Hokusai is the Japanese painter. His most famous painting is A Big Wave. Some of you may know that painting. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck. Accept it. Repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. 
It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit for just a moment. 